Hello, listeners. Welcome to the next session. An advice podcast for game masters seeking help with their next game session. I'm Adam Johns. And I'm Alyssa Johns. Hey, what else would this be? What, the podcast? Yeah, because it's an advice podcast for game masters seeking help with their next game session. That's true. That's what it is. Yeah, but what else would it be? Oh. It's a, uh, it's a audio. Let's jazz it up a, a little. Oh, oh, you're thinking like a new description. Yeah. Not say the same thing every single start of the podcast. I'm just well, we're, okay. We're quickly arriving at a hundred episodes. Oh, yeah. Should we jazz it up Should. after a hundred oh. episodes? No, I didn't mean like jazz music. Like some jazz music in there. You want to pay for extra music? No, I do not. <laughs> um, what else could it be? It's a it's a a, a fun uh, it's it's fun couples hour. <laughs> listening to D and D, shooting shooting the shooting the breeze, shooting the breeze on the D and D fun couples hour. I feel like we're like Delilah. We're like, hello, listeners. Um, on this episode, we're gonna we're gonna dive right in here with some next session help. Uh, we've got another another track on the mic here with. Ten ten twenty two. That's Adam and Alyssa. Next session help. Ten ten twenty. I don't know. I just made up some. Numbers. Oh okay. K Y T Z. Oh, I see. Yeah, yeah. Gotcha. Next session help. Next session help. No, <laughs> we'll just say the same thing. <laughs> it's so succinct. It so perfectly describes We've, exactly what this podcast. We have is. workshopped this. <laughs> almost a hundred episodes. Yeah. It's classic. Now. It's it's dialed in. That's what it is. Don't don't mess with success. <laughs> don't, don't change something when it's working. That's right. Well, yeah. that's that's a definition of insanity. <laughs> it's it's the one I just made up. In fact, <laughs> <laughs> crazy. All right, all right. Well, I would dive into a next session help, but oops. Oops. Oops, it's all Ask a GM. <laughs> all, all the questions are Ask a GM. Yep, we don't have any next session help. No, it's all Ask a GM. All Ask a GM like, questions. Oops, all berries. Yeah, that's the joke. <laughs> you found it. Oh, I said it out loud. <laughs> I described the joke out loud. I'm sorry, everyone. I feel like that is on a bingo card and someone just got... <laughs> says Someone explains the joke. Explains. Adam Adam ruins the joke yeah, by saying the joke out loud. Oh, uh, That's true. <laughs> We should make bingo cards for that our hundredth. That would be fun. Our hundredth episode bingo card. Yeah. We should make bingo cards for each other. Something you do and something I do. Oh, okay. Yeah. You, you want to get divorced? Is that what you're saying? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that's what. All that's right, what, cool. Clearly, what I'm suggesting. Okay, our first ask a GM question is from Volcanon. Volk, is that a Volk, like a cannon that shoots voles? Not like the creature, but like the spelling of soul, that's oh. O-U-L, but with a V. It's like a real jazzy so, vol. So I'm choosing really to pronounce soul. it vol, but it could be vol canon. It's, it's the, yeah. Yeah. Okay. Vol canon says, do the inhabitants on a Morkoth island know they forgot things or know they forget things? Are the inhabitants aware that people that come to the island forget things? If so, what do they understand about the phenomenon? Are they so distracted they just don't notice? They might not be aware they themselves are forgetting things, but are they aware that other people forget things? For example, let's say I arrive on the island today. Person A arrives in a year. 
Person B arrives in two years, and person C arrives sometime after that. I witness both people forget things about themselves, who they are, and where they're from. When person C arrives and asks, why can't you remember anything? Do I know? Or today, person A tells me that they're from Westville. Tomorrow, they can't remember where they're from, but I remember they told me they're from Westville. Or do I suffer some type of memory loss too, even though I've been on the island for over a year? Okay, Adam. What is a Morikoth? I have no idea. I'm very glad that you said that because I don't know. Clearly, it's some sort of memory eraser. Okay. So we had to take a quick break, which was edited out. Uh, because You said the quiet part out loud again. I did. Uh, because as it turns out, neither Alyssa nor I know what a Morikoth is. So we did a little bit of research. Because if we're really going to answer Ask a GM questions, sometimes we actually have to look up some answers. <laughs> I can't just magically know literally everything that exists in the D&D universe. We are only humans. Yeah. Unlike these Morkoths. So <laughs> Morkoths are interesting creatures that are totally worth looking up because it's got a lot of uh, good juice for, for dumping into a D&D campaign. I have seen like what one looks like is very familiar, like, mm-hmm. you know, squid with a bunch of stuff. Um, they're they're sort of like uh, um, squid, uh, kraken uh, creatures that hoard lots of stuff, and they also have lots of abilities like hypnosis and the ability to have like a whole layer that they have a lot of control over, um, which is their island. The Morkoth Island idea comes from this idea that it's a sort of floating layer traveling through planar space where they are collecting things that that uh, people leave there or that get attracted to that place. It's like the trash lady from um, Labyrinth. Yeah, with a little bit more like the ability to to then warp, you know, the whole island that they, that they are on to make it... Um, a, a sort of psychedelic prison in, to some extent. Um, so that all. However, what th- they don't possess. <laughs> one one ability that they don't specifically possess is the ability to make people forget. Um, it's not specifically listed in the fifth edition Morkoth description of abilities. Um, uh, it might be listed in other other editions if the Morkoth appears in other editions, but that specific thing does not actually appear. It took some digging to figure this out, but but this actually comes from a, a, a campaign in Critical Role where where the Morkoth had that specific ability. Now, I am 100% on board with playing up that kind of idea. It's a super interesting idea, and it sounds like a ton of fun to play through as a campaign. So, uh, Volcanon, if you want to if you want to play that into your campaign, if you want your your Morkoth to have that specific ability go for it that sounds like a blast it sounds like it'd be a lot of fun to play with but to be clear that that not that's not a specific ability the the Morkoth has naturally I like it though I mean it means that the Morkoth is collecting you as well yeah which I which I enjoy quite a lot um now there's the big question of how exactly does forgetting work on something like this well since you're the one designing the rules you get to design how it works I will say, for uh, other spells, for other effects, whenever you have um, people that are sort of continuously forgetting things, losing their place, oftentimes what that really looks like is that the person is kind of in a haze, is in, a, is in sort of a dazed state of mind that makes it difficult for them to wrap their head around the idea of anything that's not immediately right in front of them. So this this comes up you know, in stories and movies and books uh, and TV shows where 
um, it, it often looks more like you're in a dream state. Um, you know, in a dream, you are in a mansion and you're there, you know, cooking for, for um, your friends or whatever. But you never ask yourself, how did I get in this mansion? Why do I, why am I in a mansion cooking? Those are never questions that come up for you in the dream. Or if they do, they often take you out of the dream or maybe you have the ability to do lucid dreaming or whatever and, and sort of break those concepts within the dream. But usually that's the sort of um, uh, hazy, um, uh, mixed up state that you are in when you are forgetting aspects of your past. So you're not constantly um, alarmed by, by the fact that you can't remember who you were or what your name was or, or any of those things because you're in this kind of hazy state. It's like the residents of the town uh, in WandaVision, the television right. show. Right. Everybody is just sort of like this. I'm doing the thing that's right in front of me. It feels natural. It feels like this is the thing that I'm supposed to be doing right now. And it isn't until somebody goes like, but why are you here? Or how did you get here? Or or any of those things. And then oftentimes they, they sort of react with like a lot of confusion and they go, oh, well, I just drove the... Oh, uh, no, I must have walked. Oh. And, and then that's when you can kind of play up that, that idea of like, you definitely don't remember how you got here now that the question has been asked of you. Mm -hmm. But it never occurred to you to think about that question prior to it being asked. Now, according to the Critical Role Wiki, visitors to the island also slowly forget their past each time they sleep, even their prior names, and only remember their time on the island. Right. Which I like that as a good rule, but doesn't answer Volcanon's question, which is like, if I'm on the island and so-and-so comes a year later and says, hi, I'm Mike, I do this, mm -hmm. uh, I'm a carpenter, and then later goes, I don't, my, hey, my name's Charlie, like, because mm -hmm. he doesn't remember his name is Mike, and oh, uh, I don't have a job, you know, like, would I be the one to remember it, or would I forget what they told me since I've been on the island? Mm. In, in this case, I would rule probably that the specific memory that is being forgotten is the person's memory, not the actual event of things that happened. No one outside of the island forgets what Mike used to do. Right. Um, and the island isn't erasing the past of what Mike used to do. It's just clouding Mike's memory of who he used to be. Right. Um, therefore, I would say that probably the, the other people do notice that other people forget things on this island. That's what I'm thinking, too, because it says they only remember their time on the island. But my time on the island being here longer, I get to witness people forgetting. Whether I care or not is another story. But I could be like, oh, yeah, people seem to forget a lot. But, you know, it's just island time. Yeah. It's just, you know, people are just having a fun vacation. They reinvent themselves. It doesn't necessarily have to be something that I'm pointing out as sinister. I could be pointing it out as like leisure, good times for everybody. Absolutely. Especially as an NPC or something That's like that. That's what I mean, yeah. Yeah. And um, you also can play up this this sort of hazy thing uh, where somebody goes, I probably just remembered wrong. Right. Um, oh, he, he just said his name was Charlie. Uh, it must not have been Mike. Like. Yeah. Like this idea of like, I'm going to discard, I'm, I'm used to the idea that my memories might be not telling me the truth. Right. And therefore, the thing that I just heard must be the true thing, not some other thing I thought maybe I might have heard a long time ago. Yeah, like months ago. Yeah. So uh, from, that, from that concept, yeah, absolutely. But I do think that you need to have a little of that sort of haziness or acceptance of the idea that you just don't think about your time when you're not on the island while you're here. Yeah. 
um, which could be sinister. It could be uh, played up as relaxing island time. You know, it could be about all sorts of things. And this depends on where you want to go with this mystery volcano. And, like, do you want it to be uh, the players very quickly realizing something is wrong on this island? Do you want it to be um, really subtle and, and it isn't until, you know, several nights in or something that they start realizing that they have forgotten stuff? Um, this gets into a really interesting place of how do you play this as a game master when your players need to be forgetting things about their characters, or rather their characters are forgetting things. Obviously the players aren't forgetting right. those things. Uh, but their characters are forgetting things about themselves. How do you enforce that or how do you encourage that that kind of role play with your with your characters when they're going through that that experience? Um but perhaps that's a question for another time. This is not an Ask a GM question. <laughs> this is an Ask a GM question. No, I know, but that's that gets into like a deeper plot and stuff. Right, yeah. The, the, this is not next session help. This yeah. is Ask a GM. I will say, Volcano, this sounds like it would be really interesting to play through. And I do think that you get to make a choice about what are exactly are the rules of how this forgetting is going to work. Um, and it could be totally like you just don't remember. Um, you aren't in a haze. You aren't in a dazed thing you're going uh, hey my name is and then you just pause because you don't remember what your name is and it's alarming to you and you know that you are forgetting you're losing things and it it's scary or it could be like well everyone started calling me um you know turtle boy right. or whatever because of that one time that i i used turtles backs to cross this river and now i'm turtle guy yeah um oh yeah you can play up the idea that like everybody gets a nickname you get your island name. Yeah, you have your island name. And then later someone will be like, okay, but Turtle Guy's your island name, but what's your real name? And then it's upsetting because yeah, you don't be, actually remember. That could be a lot of fun to play up. Like give all the all the uh, uh, player characters all earn nicknames. Yeah. Uh, and then and then they're, that becomes their name. Uh, and somebody somebody goes like, well, what's your real name? And then and then you yeah. inform the, play, the, the player like, your character does not remember their real name. They only know their their island name. Yeah, that'd be pretty fun. That's pretty good. I like it. Cool. So there you go, Volcanon. Good okay. luck. Thank you. Great question. Moving right along to bar number 3385. Ah, good old bar number 3385. Well, it could be bar no 3385. I just yeah. took no to mean shorthand bar, for bar, number. Bar none. Bar, bar none. none 3385. Uh, Barno says, was this too complicated? Recently had my party exploring a set of elven runes that had a, I thought, light maze puzzle. However, after a couple of hours, I had to give them the answers as one of the characters figuring it out because none of the three players could work out what was happening. Setup was that each room in the ruin had one or more magical portals. Upon entering these portals, by default, you'd get sent to a random room in the ruin. Scattered throughout the room were a number of crystals in various colors, blue, green, orange, and violet. They were variously described as keystones and were found on key rings. When a character went through a portal holding a keystone, the portal changed color to match the color of the keystone and always took them to the color-corded room, like the blue stone makes the portal go blue, takes you to the blue room. We used maps so the color coding of the rooms was both narrative at the level of the drapes and decorative inlays in this room match the color of the blue keystone and visually set up on the map. It wasn't a large ruin. Three main rooms coded blue, green, orange, and an end location coded violet. They had to get to to encounter the big bad. 
The players worked out that the doorways were random to begin with and eventually worked out, after a lot of prodding, that the portal changing color wasn't just random, but if you had a blue stone, the portal went blue. If you had a green stone, it went green. But they never managed to work out that the color of the portal matches the room you went to. Even after one of them had a blue stone, went to the blue room and switched to a green stone and went to the green room, then concluded it was random. Man, I would be pulling my hair out. Yeah. <laughs> in, in the end, the best they came up with was the keystones weren't were irrelevant, and it was either just random or you had to concentrate on where you wanted to go, and the gates would take you there. Was this just too complicated on my part here? As an aside, this isn't a particularly new group. All three are both players and DMs, and two of them are long-standing tabletop role-playing games gamers. Oh my gosh! Oh. Um, Yes. The answer is yes. Well, Your puzzle was too complicated. The problem is is that we can say it's too complicated because we know the answer and we know that they didn't get it. But I don't think it's that complicated personally. I think it is too complicated for several reasons. Um, one is I would not necessarily have thought that the um, – crystals that I'm picking up were related to the portals would have taken me a long time to figure that out. Um, why would anything in the room be related to the portals? Um, the idea that I go into a room and there's a bunch of crystals in the rooms, um, unless maybe the wrong crystals are in the wrong rooms or something like that. Um, but I would need a pretty big hint to be like the crystal magic crystal exhumes, you know, radiates magic. It's the same kind of magic as the portal or something like that to, to put me onto the hint that the crystals and the portals are related to each other. But what get, what connected me was that it's a door and those are called keystones and they're on key rings and key rings with keys on them go to doors. So I suppose it would depend on how they were presented. Mm -hmm. However, um, I still don't know how to get out of the thing. Well, we just read the description. There's apparently a violet keystone. Keystone. You need the violet keystone. Was the violet keystone in one of the rooms? Yeah. Was it not in the violet room? I don't know. Because you can't get to the violet room without the violet keystone. It so must, I presume it, that they must have had the violet keystone in another room. They must have had the violet keystone in another room. All right. Here's what I'll say. I have, on many occasions made puzzles that are too complicated for the players. It isn't always the idea that your puzzle is overly complex. Sometimes you go through a lot of effort really trying to design really interesting and engaging puzzles for your players. Um, sometimes it is just that your players get the idea in their head that this is one way and everybody's on board with that idea when it is absolutely not to the answer to the puzzle. Right. It's totally wrong, but mm -hmm. they are convinced it's the right way, and they will, like, continue to hammer at that door. I, I was actually quite literally thinking of that door. <laughs> um, Alyssa was game master in a, in a game and made a big locked door uh, in, in one of the, the – it was in the library, right? I think so. Um, in, this, in this gigantic fantasy library. And everyone just tried everything to get through the door. And I think at the time you were intending that it was like go somewhere else and get a key or something like that, and that will get you through the door. So it was supposed to be like, this door is locked. You cannot go this way. Go find the key to the door. Um, but no one took it that way. Everyone was like, this door is locked. We must find the mechanism to unlock the door or find the secret. We got to punch the door a certain number of times or <laughs> attack it or, or whatever, like Let's a million different... 
let's spend the next half hour talking yeah. about this door. <laughs> yeah. Um, and and sometimes your players just get it into their head. This is how we're going to solve this problem. We have to throw ourselves at it head, head on. And you have to just adjust as a game master. And sometimes that means taking your licks and saying, boy, maybe I made this too complicated. Um, or maybe I didn't present it in the way that was that was going to give the right hints uh, to help them solve it. Or sometimes it just is, um, you know, a recognition that uh, that you this this wasn't the right kind of puzzle, or or didn't make it made more sense in your head than it did in the in the presentation that you gave to. Or maybe else. it wasn't a puzzle at all. Or maybe it wasn't a puzzle at all. It's actually for this reason that I have almost entirely stopped giving puzzles that have single solutions. Mm-hmm. Um, I've basically moved entirely away from that as a game master. When I do design some kind of puzzle that exists, which I still use often, I still use um, things that look like puzzles uh, as as a fun thing for the players to do. But often of times, what it really is is that it has several different ways that you could potentially solve it that I have already prepared for myself in one way or another and then left myself open to anything else the players can come up with that would make sense. An example of this is Adam likes to throw um, a lava pit there's like a lever on the other side of a lava pit that you have to throw to do something. How do you get across the lava pit? Like it looks like a puzzle, but it's more of just kind of an environmental encounter. Yeah. A good way to think about these is if you've ever watched uh, like videos of people solving the Breath of the Wild, uh, Legend of Zelda Breath of the Wild shrines. Or in, Tears of the Kingdom. Or Tears of the Kingdom. Uh, and they're solving these shrines that clearly have a designated solution, but... They're solving them in entirely unexpected ways or using using abilities that, that probably weren't the way, you know, you're probably not supposed to throw three bombs and blow yourself up over this wall, but that works, um, and right. it, it ultimately gets you to the other side like I you were supposed a, to do. I put a rocket on my shield and just got myself yeah, up bl- there. Blasted my way through this or right. whatever. But the developers have said, like, you know, most people go, ha-ha, this wasn't the way it was supposed to be done, but look how I did it. And the developers go, yeah. You solved it. Doesn't you solved it. It all counts. It all yeah, it doesn't matter. We're excited that you that you solved it however you needed to. Barnon, the the situation that you had here, I would have given up way before three hours. I would have given up like forty five minutes or half an hour into this. Did he say three hours? Yes. Um uh, after a couple of hours, he said two hours. Goodness gracious. I had to give them the answer. I would never have waited that long. No, again, I would have pulled my hair out. Yeah. Been the keystone and the door, <laughs> and they match. Yeah. Um, also, um, this is a great place for you to be able to give hints to characters. There's a really important thing, a really important tool as a game master, which is the difference between player knowledge and character knowledge. And oftentimes we use this tool as a way of demonstrating what the player can sense within the world, right? Uh, We say, roll a perception check, and we say, you see this, you hear this. But one of the things that is just an important thing, an important and valuable tool to give as a game master is what the character knows as opposed to what the player knows. It is totally possible for you to, to say, everybody roll an intelligence check. You are almost positive that these crystals take you into the portal of the associated color. Done. <laughs> <laughs> I have given you the hint. I didn't need a character to do it. Um, I gave you a hint, but not the whole answer. You still have to figure out what color does what or why that's important. Um, 
And now I've set you on the path to being able to solve this. And I have absolutely done that on multiple occasions when I need to provide some kind of a hint. And the players know it's a hint. I mean, they know what I'm doing in that, in that case. If I'm really subtle, if I'm really tricky with the way that I present that information, I might wait until somebody rolls some kind of a check, until somebody, you know, tries to investigate. I take a really close look at the crystals. Ah, roll me a check. You're pretty certain that these crystals are associated with these portals. Yeah. Done. Done. Um, so if I if I have the opportunity, I will always jump on those chances. What the player's input gave gave them the answer, and that makes them feel like they were clever and figured out the the solution to the puzzle without me, you know, handing it to them on a on a silver platter or pulling your hair out. Right. But I will say, sometimes players get very very stuck, and you just have to give them. Um, there is no way through this door. You have to go find a key. Mm-hmm. Done. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> and please don't wait two hours oh, to God. get to that. Give them that answer way before then and get onto the fun parts of playing before your players are so wildly frustrated, before you're so wildly frustrated watching them throw themselves at a puzzle that they're clearly not understanding or not 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 making any progress on. That being said, I like your puzzle and I might use it. <laughs> <laughs> I'll remember that. Well, no, because now, now I can't use it. I can only use it if Adam doesn't know there or remember. Go. I'll just play dumb and, and be like, these crystals are garbage and throw them all out. <laughs> um, there you go. Um, let's move on to Puzzle-Headed Dragon. That sounds great. Yeah. Puzzle-Headed Dragon says, with, not a puzzle question, which is really funny. Um, <laughs> yeah, after the last puzzle question. After the last puzzle question. Yeah. Uh, crossbow expert question. So my player is creating a level 11 samurai. He wants to focus on ranged attacks with crossbow, so he wants to take crossbow expert. Since he gets three attacks, his first two would be with the heavy crossbow, and then he would switch to a hand crossbow for the last one, which would allow him to take the bonus action shot. Is this a valid strategy? I think it would work for the first round, but would fall off due to the action economy of swapping weapons. This is a great question. Once again... Boy, we got we got a lot of these. We had to pause the podcast and edit out the the pause as I look up the answer to this. Okay, there's a few things that are going on here in this question. So the first one is it's a level eleven samurai. Level eleven samurai because it is a fighter subclass has three attacks per action. So right away they already have the ability to make three attacks on their turn. But the question asker, puzzle headed dragon, is asking can they make a fourth attack? The bonus action. Using the bonus action, which is a function of the crossbow master, uh, crossbow expert um, feat. So the crossbow expert says, when you use, uh, among other things that it gives you a benefit of, when you use the attack action and attack with a one-handed weapon, you can use a bonus action to attack with a hand crossbow you are holding. So you have to use the attack action and attack with a one-handed weapon, and then you get to make an extra bonus action attack with a hand crossbow. Which implies that you are actively holding the hand crossbow. Correct. At the time in which you make the attack with a one-handed weapon, you have to be holding a hand crossbow, mm-hmm. which could be a hand crossbow because a hand crossbow is a one-handed weapon. So um, the idea here being, could this person, could this samurai make four attacks in a round by doing two attacks with a two-handed crossbow, then switching to a hand crossbow for one attack, thereby making it so that they made an attack with a one-handed weapon, that hand crossbow, and allowing them to then make a bonus action attack with a hand crossbow. And the answer is yes. Really? 
once. Oh. <laughs> they could do this once. Or rather, they could do it sort of every other turn, I suppose. Um, but basically, the way that it works is that in order to switch weapons, it requires that the samurai use what is called an other activity on their turn. This is a, a single free action that every uh, character can do once per turn as a part of an attack or a movement in which they can do a single object interaction. This would include switching to another weapon. Mm. So the question here ultimately is about, can they switch to another weapon and how many actions does that take? And the answer is yes, but they, they can only, only get one of those per turn. In order to switch to a weapon again on the same turn, they would have to use their action to do it, which of course they have already used up in all their attacks. So it would play out like this. The samurai makes two attacks with their heavy crossbow. They use their one free switch to another weapon to switch to their hand crossbow. They make their third attack with the hand crossbow. They then are have made an attack with a single-handed weapon. They can then make a bonus attack with that same hand crossbow. However, they are now out of the ability to switch to another weapon. So on their next turn, what happens? On their next turn, only one of two things can happen. Either they could have dropped their hand crossbow. Oh, no, I guess it doesn't matter. On the next turn, what happens is they are now holding their hand crossbow. Um, they could fire their hand crossbow. And use the bonus action. Uh, and use the bonus action, but then they can't switch to their um, other crossbow. Oh, here's yeah, an interesting could. interesting question. They could, because they used a part of their action, can their bonus action interrupt the attacks in their main action? Interesting. Oh, I see. Can they can they do it in the reverse order? Can they do it in the reverse order? Can they use their hand crossbow bonus action and then do the other two? That's an interesting idea. See, I was thinking the way to get around it would be to, instead of using a heavy crossbow that's two-handed, you just have two one-handed crossbows. Yes. Very clearly they could do this if they had two hand crossbows. But I don't know if you have to reload with a hand um, or you, if you could have like a magical magazine. Crossbow expert does not require you to, to take any actions or have a free hand in order to reload. Yeah, so that's bam, 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 bam. That's yes. how I would do it. Um, yes. Probably what they're trying to do is they're trying to maximize, well, if damage. I... Yeah, the heavy crossbow does more damage and I want to get the more damage of the heavy crossbow. Right. Um, if I was the game master in this game, I would probably tell them no. And the reason for that would be this is too complicated and you're really trying to break the game. <laughs> and what you're really trying to do, the image that you're trying to create is to be a guy who is making a lot of attacks with crossbows. Um, if you wanted to do this every single turn, just wield two-hand crossbows and take the hit on the extra damage that the two-handed crossbow might give you. Um, if, I really, if I really had a player who wanted to fight me on it, I might go, all right, fine, whatever. You know what? Just fire three attacks with the big crossbow and do an extra hand crossbow attack and I'll just let you get away with it rather than trying to force your way through some kind of loophole. Right. Um, if the idea here is just like, I want to get the extra bonus attack and I want to have the damage from the big crossbow, then like, whatever. See, It's not making a huge difference to just let you do three attacks with the big crossbow and then fire the fire the hand crossbow. It's it's not a it's not going to it's not going to make the difference on a on a major monster kill most of the time or anything like that. Um and it's going to make the player happy. It's way easier to think about. See, my idea was that they fire the two with the heavy crossbow and then drop it and then are able to switch to their hand crossbow, which means 
that on their next turn, they need to pick up their crossbow and they um, risk in the time where it's on the ground, someone else picking it up. Yeah, or having to spend their their free action or whatever to pick up. Which means that if they spend their free action to pick it up, they cannot do that trick the next turn. Right. So then they can do it every other turn. Which is a possibility. But ultimately, I would say... Yeah, it is too complicated. you're, you're, you're You're fighting this on a complication to avoid... What an extra like a D eight instead of a D six on the on the damage, <laughs> um, for for one attack, not even for all the attacks for one attack. Oh, D ten. So an extra four p- possible damage going from a D six to a D ten on one attack. On one attack, no one. Because they're doing two attacks with the heavy crossbow, and then one attack for a hand crossbow, so that they can get an extra attack with a hand crossbow. Okay, so another D6, because the hand crossbow is D6. I suppose so. That's what I, yeah. Or, or well, that's why I'm saying, ultimately, just let them, just make the three attacks with the heavy crossbow and the one attack with the hand crossbow. Oh, I see. Just okay. allow them to, to do it, even though, obviously, it's not, it's not, the rules don't allow it, but it's just easier. It's easier to conceptualize, and clearly what they're trying to sort of accomplish with that, and I'd probably just allow it. Okay. And then I'd make it clear that I'm allowing it, and that's not really how the rules work. Um, but yes, Puzzle-Headed Dragon, if you want to know the rules, it seems like they could get away with it. Specifically, it's a funky mix. Kind of, of a gray area. It's kind of a gray area. It has to do with, with, do they have the action economy to switch weapons each turn? Um, and can they insert their bonus action attack in the middle of their three attacks on their next turn, switching back to their heavy crossbow, um, as their one item switch? Right. Okay. So there you go. Thanks, Puzzleheaded Dragon. Yeah. Uh, moving on to Use That Spell. Use That Spell. So much fun. So much fun. <laughs> Use That Spell. This is, I'm going to not say this correctely. Here we go. Odaluk's uh, Resilient Sphere. Oh, that's how I would have said it. Oh, yeah? Okay. Odaluk. 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 I like Oda. I, I've never heard it pronounced. I'm the only one who's ever heard heard it pronounced by me. <laughs> Oda Luke's Resilient Sphere um, from Player's Handbook, fourth level evocation, casting time one action, range of 30 feet, components VSM, and the material is a hemispherical piece of crystal, clear crystal, and a matching hemispherical piece of gum Arabic. Arabic. Gum Arabic. Don't know what kind of gum that is. Never heard of it. Mm. Duration concentration up to one minute. A sphere of shimmering force encloses a creature or object of large size or smaller within range. An unwilling creature must make a dexterity saving throw. On a failed save, the creature is enclosed for the duration. Nothing but not physical objects, energy, or other spell effects can pass through the barrier in or out. Though a creature in the sphere can breathe there. Very glad they put that in. The sphere is immune to all damage, and a creature or object inside can't be damaged by attacks or effects originating from outside. Nor can a creature inside the sphere damage anything outside of it. The sphere is weightless and just large enough to contain the creature or object inside. An enclosed creature can use its action to push against the sphere's walls and thus roll the sphere at up to half the creature's speed. Similarly, nope, similarly, similarly, Ooh, that is a tough word to say out loud on a podcast. Similarly, 
the globe can be picked up and moved by other creatures because it's weightless, which is exciting. A disintegrate spell targeting the globe destroys it without harming anything inside it. Again, another thing they had to like rule. This is from the Artificer very, and Wizard Specific. Yeah. Yeah. I like it. Yeah, it's so much fun. This is a really interesting spell with lots of uses. You can enclose an enemy that you don't want to deal with for the next uh, up to one minute. You can um, carry someone who might be unconscious up the side of a mountain. <laughs> yeah, the, the power to like enclose somebody and they literally get the single save to save against it and then you can't take any further action and can't do anything about being trapped in this sphere is very interesting. No, nothing can harm them. Nothing can damage it except for disintegrate, which I guess, could they use disintegrate inside of the spell? I would assume so. Okay. So you'd have to be able to do a disintegrate spell. Which is a reasonably high level spell on its own. Right. Um, now what it doesn't say, it does say that you can breathe there, but it doesn't say if you can hear people talking to you through the sphere. I'd probably assume that you can. Uh, you're right, it doesn't It doesn't specify, but since you can breathe and since it doesn't say, you know, somebody inside the sphere is, is deaf to anything that happens outside of the sphere or anything like that, then I'd probably assume that you can you can hear and also talk. But you could play it that they can't hear and they can't necessarily see out of it. Mm. If you want to say they're trying to hide something from someone in particular and they have to enclose them in the sphere. Yeah. Know, that kind of a thing. There, there, there are lots of really interesting rulings on this. It says very specifically, nothing, not physical objects, energy, or other spell effects can pass through the barrier in or out. Um... It also says the sphere is immune to all damage and a creature or object inside can't be damaged by attacks or effects originating from outside, nor can a creature inside the sphere damage anything outside of it. So there's a lot of really interesting effects here. Like if you can see in and out of the sphere, can you be affected by a laser? And it sounds like yes, so long as the laser doesn't do damage or mirror images or uh, illusion spells. You could be affected by illusion spells while inside of the sphere, assuming you can see, except you can't be damaged by them. Yeah. Energy in this is like a really interesting kind of vague term. It is a vague term, right? Because that, I mean, like... There's a lot of ways that you could rule this as a game master. Well, the illusion spell is made up of energy and therefore can't enter the sphere. But right. you could be fooled by an illusion outside of the sphere... You just can't put an illusion inside of it. But I, I I would say that ruling is so much up to the interpretation oh, of the yeah. Game Master. And I could totally see it being ruled the other way. I could see it useful to think of this sphere as like a pocket dimension, but mm -hmm. different. Or like imprisonments, um, burial option mm. kind of a thing. It'd be really interesting. Uh, can you use the sphere to survive completely baffling interactions? Could you put the sphere around yourself and hurl yourself into a volcano? Oh, right. That's an interesting idea. For one minute until you can't concentrate on it anymore. Right. And you're screwed. Um, it doesn't say that the creature's blinded in it. So I suppose I, they I can... think you can see outside of it. Yeah. It can use its action to push against the sphere's walls. Unless you paint it. Like, you're not damaging it. That's true. You could, like, cover it and, like, squirt some squid ink on it call it good. Yeah. Yeah, 
I totally think that you could. I think that, <laughs> that like <laughs> you could totally paint it or cast a darkness spell. You could still be affected by darkness on the outside of the sphere, even though the darkness spell couldn't penetrate into the inside of the sphere. It doesn't say if it would float or not. I suppose it would because it has air in it, but like... Could you use this as a submarine? Well, not physical objects can pass through it, so water can't pass through it. Water can't pass through it. Correct. Right. It counts as a physical object. Right, but what I'm asking is, can it, would it float or would it sink? Oh, well, it does... It has air. It says it is weightless, so I would assume that it is therefore buoyant uh, and would float on top of water as a, as a weightless thing generally would be. And, and like you said, it does have air. Uh, there's an interesting question about whether or not the air actually passes through the barrier. Maybe it generates its own air. It is magic, after all. <laughs> the sphere is permeable to atmosphere, allowing breathable gas for you ex- to exchange freely. But the sphere clearly blocks gaseous spell effects and other gaseous yeah, creature attacks. Yeah, that was going to be one of attacks, my questions, too. Which raise all sorts of questions. The ability to breathe is hand-waved by the magical nature of the spell itself. This one is the simplest, but allows for all sorts of absurd rules as written applications, like... Keeping fish alive without water. <laughs> without air circulation to carry sound vibrations, real-world physics would not allow sound to pass through the sphere. Yeah, I, it would be really interesting to see how people play with this sphere. There's a lot of weird rules on this. The sphere is a selectively permeable membrane, a magical sausage skin. <laughs> <laughs> I think I would also, I think I would run it as being transparent and permeable to air, but filtering out the bad things. Mm-hmm. Um, so I think you would be able to hear and you would be able to see through it. But, but like a cloud kill or, or poisonous gas wouldn't pass through the. Which would be an interesting thing to cast if someone cast cloud kill mm-hmm. and you needed to say, put your whole party inside of it. Can you fit more than one person inside of That's it? That's my next question. It says very specifically. Encloses a creature or object of large size or smaller within range. It does not say how big the sphere is. Mm-mm. I'd probably rule that if you huddled all real close together, you could probably, you know, you can fit a large size person comfortably. Therefore, you could fit several large size individuals very uncomfortably. Yeah, that's crammed together. Kind of like a Harry Potter port key. Like, if, like, I'll cast on the object. You guys all have to be touching this object when I cast it. And then you will also happen to be enclosed in the bubble. Yeah. I would, I would assume that. But again, I could see it being ruled the other way. Or I could see it being ruled that, like, your front half is in, but your legs are sticking out the bottom. Oh. That'd be uncomfortable. <laughs> would it? What do you feel? Or that? would chop your legs off? I don't think it would chop your legs off. Well, but I do think does that... blood pass through from one part of your body to the other part of oh, your body? No. Okay, that's, now we're getting into deep. We're getting into deep. Um, either way, I like this spell. I want to. I want to hear how you guys have used it if you have. Oh yeah, I'd oh, love to hear some. Need some, some listener feedback. Uh, auto, uh, uh, auto Luke's resilient sphere stories. Yeah. Sounds also, like... I want to know the history behind Auto Luke. Got to yeah, look right? that up. Yeah. Who's Auto Luke? Who is this Auto Luke fella? He made some sphere. But until next time. Till next time. So I'm Adam Johns. No, wait. <laughs> we 
gotta give. We gotta, I gotta plug do the other thing. Until next time, <laughs> you can go on our website, nextsessionpodcast.com, to submit a question and tell us all about those interesting stories about your spheres. Um, you can also find us on Facebook at the Next Session and on Instagram at Next Session Podcast. So I'm Adam Johns and I'm Alyssa Johns. Tune in next time, and we'll help you prep for your next session. Goodbye.